Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Hi, my name's Eric, and I'll be reading you selections from the e-edition of today's Cape Cod Times. Today's date is Tuesday, September 12th of 2023. We'll start with the weather. Today, morning showers, clouds, and then sun and humidity this afternoon, a high of 75 expected, a low of 68 in the overnight with low clouds, warm and more humidity. Tomorrow, Wednesday, a couple of showers, heavy thunderstorms later in the afternoon, high of 77, low of 67 in the overnight. On Thursday, partly sunny with pleasant and less humid conditions, high of 75, a low of 59. On Friday, a high of 73 and a low of 62 with gusty breezes and high clouds all day. On Saturday, wind and rain from Hurricane Lee, it will be cooler, high of 65, a low of 61. So we have an off and on a wet and dry uh, week all through the week, kind of uh, muggy conditions. Sunrise today was at 6.18 a.m. It was beautiful. Set at 6.56 p.m. tonight, we will have 12 hours and 38 minutes of daylight. The moon will rise at 3.36 a.m. It will set at 6.18 p.m. Now, we'll go to the front of the paper where the lottery results and the news are kept, and we read the lottery results because somebody asked for them. If there's something you would like read to the blind or those who are print disabled, you can email us at info at audiblelocalledger.org or call us at 508-539-2030 and we'll consider reading it. And if you miss any of the information that we share in our readings, you can always go to audiblelocalledger.org. And in the upper right corner is the Archived Readings tab. If you click on that, you'll find a week's worth of our newspaper readings to catch up on, as well as a wide variety of periodicals and literature for your listening enjoyment. All of that's free for the blind and the print disabled at audiblelocalledger.org, the Archived Readings tab. For the latest results... For the Mass Lottery, we go to MassLottery.com, and with the numbers game results for Monday, September 11th of 2023, in the midday drawing, the numbers were 8021. Yesterday's midday drawing results, 8021. In the evening drawing of the numbers game, the numbers were 6476. 6476. In the numbers game last night. For Powerball of Monday, September 11th, 9, 25, 27, 53, and 66, with 5, the bonus number. For Mass Cash of Monday, September 11th, 2, 14, 29, 32, and 34. And Lucky for Life rounds out our results for Monday, September 11th, 7, 16, 22, 34, and 45, with 11, the bonus number. Good luck to all who play. Remember us if you win. Now, heading back to the Cape Cod Times, and on the cover, the local news. Families reflect on day when everyone's lives changed by Allison Kuznets of the Statehouse News Service. There are no local news stories on the cover. This is regional. Diane Hunt's voice broke as she read the name of her deceased son, 
during a memorial ceremony on the State House steps early Monday morning, marking the 22nd anniversary of the 9-11 terror attacks. Hunt told the news service that her son, William Christopher Hunt, was murdered on September 11th of 2001. He worked at New York City's World Trade Center on the 84th floor of the South Tower, which collapsed within an hour of being struck by a hijacked airplane. William Hunt's name and more than 200 others were read aloud Monday to remember victims of the terrorist attacks in New York and Washington and the passenger-thwarted attack that ended in Pennsylvania who were Massachusetts residents or had strong ties to the Commonwealth. He was 32, beautiful, handsome, redhead, Diane Hunt said in an interview. I never want anybody to forget he was a wonderful human being, so I really want him to be a part of everybody's life. Never let anybody forget this day. It's too important. Hunt of Plymouth said her son was an amazing father to his 15-month-old daughter, Emma. Governor Maura Healy, Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll, and Boston Mayor Michelle Wu also participated in reading names alongside other family members who shared brief, heart-rending tributes of their loved ones. As we listen to their names, we honor their memory and our national commitment to never forget, Leslie Blair, a family advisory member of the Massachusetts 9-11 Fund, said. Behind each name is a unique person that was taken from us far too soon. Blair said families, friends, and the country are forever changed by the attacks, which claimed nearly 3,000 lives. During her first 9-11 ceremony as governor, Healy solemnly descended the steps of the state capitol with an American flag, which was raised to half-staff. Healy remained at the flagpole during renditions of the Star-Spangled Banner and Taps. Spectators stood outside the statehouse steps, with others gathered across the street near Boston Common during the proceedings. At the event, which didn't include remarks from Healy, Veteran Services Secretary John Santiago or other state officials, attendees recited a responsive poem titled, We Remember Them. Sonia Tita Buopo read the name of her mother, Sonia Mercedes Morales Buopolo, who was a passenger on American Airlines Flight 11 the hijacked plane from Boston that struck the North Tower. Sonita Tita Puapaolo wore a necklace with her mother's wedding ring, which she said was discovered under 1.6 million tons of rubble at Ground Zero and identified through DNA matching. Miracles do happen, Puapolo told the news service after the ceremony, describing the ring as an important talisman. Puapolo of Boston said she published a book called Sonia's Ring, 11 Ways to Heal Your Heart, as she grappled with the aftermath of the tragedy. She was just an amazing human being, Polo said of her mother. We read the names, every single one of those people who were on the flight. They're more than names. Everyone's lives changed, not only just us at a personal level, but the world changed. Moving to the Cape and Island section, property tax increase sought for new $11 million Chatham Senior Center by Zane Razak in Chatham. A hotly contested proposal for a new Council on Aging building will be the star of the show during the special town meeting on September 18th. There are just eight articles on the docket. The first four votes revolve mostly around housekeeping articles, such as paying bills with available funds. This is for bills received after the close of the fiscal year. The town meeting will mark the third time residents consider the proposal for a new Council on Aging building. 
According to a report by town staff to the select board, the proposed two-story Center for Active Living is projected to cost $10,961,961. What's the Council on Aging building issue about? Voters last defeated the proposal at the town meeting in May twice. The new building would be located at 1610 Main Street in West Chatham, a Route 28 site that's donated to the town by Bill Marsh. Two separate votes were held. While the proposal got a majority of support both times, it didn't garner two-thirds of the vote as required, and it failed narrowly. At Chatham's annual election on May 11th, voters approved Question 1, which sought a Proposition 2.5 debt exclusion for the project, with 624 votes against 481 no votes, paving the way for the town to hold another vote at a new town meeting. Town meeting voters also turned down in 2021 the proposal when it failed to garner two-thirds of the vote as required. Why does the Council on Aging issue matter to voters? Opponents say the plan's too expensive, and it shows little compromise, and the location is wrong. Supporters say the current Council on Aging building is inadequate, doesn't meet the residents' needs, and that cost will only increase. If the measure is approved at an interest rate of 5% for a 20-year loan, a house valued at $1 million would see the yearly tax bill increase by $94.42 in the first year. The annual amount would shrink over time. The final increase would be estimated to be $49.45, according to the report by town staff. So what is a town meeting? A town meeting is both an event and an entity, according to the Secretary of the Commonwealth's website. As an event, it's a gathering of a town's eligible voters and is referred to as the town meeting. As an entity, it's the legislative body for towns in Massachusetts, and it's referred to simply as town meeting. Thirteen of the 15 Cape Cod towns, including Chatham, have open town meetings, meaning all voters who live in that town may vote on all matters. Falmouth has a representative town meeting where all voters elect town meeting members who then vote on all town meeting matters. The town of Barnstable is governed by an elected town council rather than by a town meeting. When and where is the Chatham Town Meeting? Well, the special town meeting will be held at 6 p.m. on September 18th at the Monomoy Regional Middle School at 425 Kroll Road. And where can I find the warrant? The warrant is mailed to all who are registered before the town meeting. It can also be found online on the town website. Very empowering is our next story from the Cape and Islands. That's the headline. Turkey Feather Cape unveiled at Aquina Powwow by Rachel Devaney in Aquina. A drum could be heard in the distance as an intimate group of tribal elders gathered Sunday at Vanderhoop Homestead in Aquina Cultural Center. Structures that overlook striated multicolored clay cliffs and the Atlantic Ocean. Julia Marden's hands shook as she unwrapped a four-foot by six-foot turkey feather mantle that took her, a member of the Wampanoag tribe of Gayhead, Aquina, about a year to twine by hand. As elders took turns wrapping themselves in the cape-like garment, tears streamed down Marden's face. It means so much to debut the mantle here in Aquina, said Marden, who is known internationally for her traditional weaving and painting techniques. This is why I made it. I couldn't ask for anything better than this. This makes all the work worth it. 
While there are other feathered mantles in existence, the ancient twining technique Marden used when creating the piece is what makes it special, she said. The turkey feathers are closet tw are close twined and embedded into the cape, she said. No Wampanoag has twined a mantle in 400 years. While the mantle has been completed for roughly a month, Marden said she waited to reveal the piece at the Aquina Wampanoag powwow so family, friends, and tribal elders can be the first to wear the garment. Cynthia Vanderhope Aikens, an Aquina Wampanoag tribal member and elder, was surprised by the weight of the mantle. It's heavy, Aikens said. You feel important when you have this on. Cheryl Andrews Maltese, chairwoman of the Wampanoag tribe of Gayhead, also donned the mantle. The finished garment, she said, makes the tribe proud. It feels very empowering. You can feel the energy of the ancestors in it, said Andrews Malte, and the hues of the feathers in the sunlight. It's phenomenal. Marden, who is from Falmouth and now lives in Vermont, was also scheduled to speak to tribal members and the public about the mantle during an artist talk Monday at the Vanderhope Helmstead, said Nadeja Bowling, director of the Cultural Center. So much valuable information has been captured throughout Julia's journey with this cape, and as Wampanoag people, we cherish this kind of history that will live on, said Bowling. Julia's an inspiration to us all. For Marden, the mantle is one of the most powerful pieces she's executed in her lifetime. It's been haunting me for 30 years, and it's been a race against time to complete it, she said. There's been a lot of pressure because none of our original twined mantles survived. This has to be done for our people and the Wampanoag community. Six years ago, Marden began the twining process for the mantle, but health complications forced Marden to put the large-scale project away for about five years. When she picked the project back up in 2022, she slowly began to weave two rows a day. I realized I'm getting old and I'm running out of time, she said. By the time I got brave, it was almost past the time to do it. It took Marden a few months to sort turkey feathers, which were sourced from California, and about a year to weave the body of the mantle and the neckline. But the idea for the mantle occurred to Marden when she began working at Plymouth Plantation's Wampanoag Indian Program in 1991. While the museum, which is now known as Plymouth Patuxet Museums, fell out of favor recently with Wampanoag communities, she said at that time staff was taught traditional crafts by Wampanoag people. All the staff learned traditional arts. I learned how to twine from fellow employees when I first started, she said, and I've been weaving ever since. When she learned that mantles existed in Wampanoag communities before colonization, she said she knew she had to make one. This would have been worn by people of status on big occasions. Any ceremonies or when you want to show up in a big way, said Marden, it's definitely not your everyday wear. Much of the difficulty in creating a mantle is the ancient twining technique, said Marden. Twining is the oldest form of basketry there is worldwide, she said. Traditionally, the turkey feather mantle would have been made from spun cordage, from natural plant fibers like dogbane, milkweed, or false nettle. The plant fibers would be gathered by Wampanoag families after plant flowers began to dry naturally, said Marden. We didn't use a drop spindle or a wheel of any sort, said Marden. We spun all our cordage by hand, and a good spinner could do it in one back-and-forth motion. Wampanoag spinners would begin learning the cordage process from early childhood and spend their lives working on fancy projects like mantles but they also made bags that tribal families used for practical day-to-day -day living. From food and seed storage to bulrush mats that were used to insulate winter homes like wet us, 
Spinners were incredibly important, like we twos, pardon me, winter homes like we twos. Spinners were incredibly important, said Marden. It was essential for every household to have woven items. We didn't have cabinets and closets in the we two, she said. Everything we owned were kept in baskets and bags. Because of colonization, genocide, slavery, and war, the art of spinning was nearly lost in eastern woodland territory, said Marden, who used cotton cordage to craft the mantle. Over time, the art of twining also fell out of favor when new materials were introduced. Spinning is a time-consuming craft, so not a lot of people still do it, she said. New technologies also intervened. Now you can go to the grocery store and buy machine-made bags and buy any kind of cordage that you want. While the mantle is Marden's most recent project, she's also made a name for herself by bringing back the ancient techniques of false embroidery, particularly porcupine false embroidery and traditional overlay. It's become my purpose to bring these techniques back to community, she said. Marden is also a master weaver and has built entire collections of traditionally made baskets and bags. Her work has been displayed in Native American museums across New England, including the Mashantucket Pequot Museum and Research Center and the Robbins Museum of Archaeology in Middleborough. The process behind these projects is very emotional and it's very powerful, said Marden. Much of the work takes a long time and I spend a lot of personal time with each piece. Next year, the mantle will make its way back to the Aquina Cultural Center, said Bowling. For the last year, Bowling and her sister Tyson A. Iguer Bowling visited Marden at her home in Vermont to document the mantle-making process. After the garment tours a series of Wampanoag communities, the mantle will be on exhibit at the Cultural Center with an accompanied short film produced by Bowling and Aguiar Bowling. Most people don't think about the effort, energy, and time that went into this piece. She's so giving in that way, and we can all learn so much from Julia. This is the type of knowledge that's meant to be shared within community. Marden has plans to create a rabbit-skinned, twined blanket, though she said the mantle was an extremely humbling amount of work. Getting to the end, I could feel my hands going. This is my coup de grace. It will most likely be the most important piece I ever do. And we have completed the local news. We'll move on to the national news. Challenges loom as House returns. Speaker faces shutdown and impeachment inquiry by Lisa Mascaro of the Associated Press in Washington. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is a man who stays in motion, enthusiastically greeting tourists at the Capitol, dashing overseas last week to the G7 Summit of Industrial World Leaders, raising funds back home to elect fellow Republicans to the House majority. But beneath the whirlwind of activity is a stubborn standstill, an imbalance of power between the far-right Republicans who hoisted McCarthy to the Speaker's role, yet threaten his own ability to lead the House. It's a political standoff that will be tested anew as the House returns this week from a long summer recess and McCarthy faces a collision course of difficult challenges, seeking to avoid a government shutdown, support Ukraine in the war, and launch an impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. They've got some really heavy lifting ahead, said the number two Republican in the Senate, John Toon of South Dakota. McCarthy of California is going to have his hands full trying to figure out how to navigate and execute, he said. Congress has been here before, as has McCarthy in his nearly two decades in office, but the stakes are ever higher, with Republicans powered by an increasingly hard-right faction that's refusing to allow business as usual in Washington. 
With former President Donald Trump's backing, McCarthy's right flank pushed him into the Speaker's office at the start of the year, only after he agreed to a long list of conservative demands, including the ability to call a quick vote to vacate the chair and remove him from office. That threat of an abrupt ouster hovers over McCarthy's every move, especially now. To start, Congress faces a deadline to fund the government by the end of the month or risk a potentially devastating federal shutdown. There are just 11 working days for Congress to act once the House resumes on Tuesday, today. Facing a backlash from conservatives who want to slash government funding, McCarthy may be able to ease the way by turning to another hard-right priority, launching a Biden impeachment inquiry over the business dealings of the president's son, Hunter Biden. For McCarthy running the two tracks, a government funding process alongside an impeachment drive, is an unusual and politically fraught undertaking. But starting a formal impeachment inquiry into Biden could help to appease Russian Repu- to appease Republican allies of Trump, who has emerged as the GOP frontrunner to confront Biden in the 2024 election for the White House. He's being squeezed, Brad Woodhouse, a veteran Democratic operative, said McCarthy. Woodhouse is now a senior advisor to the Congressional Integrity Project, which is preparing to criticize Republicans over the Biden impeachment. The White House has said Biden's not involved in his son's business dealings. But Trump's allies among House Republicans are working furiously to unearth any links between Biden and his son's business, as they portray Hunter Biden as trading on the family name for financial enrichment and work to erode public support for the president ahead of the presidential election. Republicans haven't yet been able to produce evidence of wrongdoing by President Biden. White House spokesman Ian Sam said, Spoke- Speaker McCarthy shouldn't cave to the extreme far-right members who are threatening to shut down the government unless they get a baseless, evidence-free impeachment of President Biden. The consequences for the American people are too serious. Meanwhile, what should have been a fairly prescribed process to fund the government after McCarthy and Biden negotiated a more than $1 trillion deal earlier this summer over the debt limit appears to be falling apart. Even a stopgap measure to simply keep government funding at existing levels for a few months while Congress tries to finish the spending bills is a non-starter for McCarthy's right flank. Conservatives, powered by the House Freedom Caucus, are insisting federal spending be rolled back to 2022 levels, and they want to add other priorities to the legislation. If not, they say they'll oppose a temporary measure, called a Continuing Resolution, or CR, to keep government running. With command of dozens of votes, the hard right can deny McCarthy the support he needs to pass a Republican bill on its own. But relying on Democrats for votes would bring other problems for McCarthy if he's seen as disloyal to his ranks. Conservatives want to beef up border security and address what Republicans deride as the weaponization of the Justice Department's prosecutions, including of those charged in the January 6, 2021, attack on the Capitol. They also want to end what they call the Pentagon's woke policies as the Defense Department tries to provide diversity, equity, and inclusion to service personnel. Congress also has a pending request from the White House to provide an additional $40 billion on three fronts, including some $21 billion in military and humanitarian relief for Ukraine as it battles the Russian invasion, and $12 billion to replenish federal disaster aids after floods, fires, and other problems, including to curb the flow of deadly fentanyl at the southern U.S. border with Mexico. The next headline 
on the front page of today's Cape Cod Times, dated Tuesday, September 12th of 2023. Biden lauds progress on Vietnam trip, visits business leaders, and the John McCain Memorial by Josh Boak and Amr Madani of the Associated Press in Hanoi, Vietnam. President Joe Biden closed a visit to Vietnam on Monday by spotlighting new business deals and partnerships between the two countries and paying respects at a memorial honoring his late friend and colleague, Senator John McCain, who endured a lengthy imprisonment in Hanoi during the Vietnam War. Biden met with Prime Minister Phan Minh Chin, who also accompanied Biden at a quick visit to a meeting of business leaders. Biden also sat down with President Vo Van Tuong, who hosted the U.S. president for a formal state luncheon. The two sides are looking to strengthen their partnership amid shared concerns about China's assertiveness in the Pacific. Both leaders spoke about strengthening Vietnam's semiconductor industry. Biden made clear his administration's commitment to an open Pacific. My message today is quite simple. Let's keep it up, Biden told the CEOs. We need to develop and drive our collaboration. We need to forge new partnerships. The Prime Minister also stressed the need to improve cooperation and said the sky is the limit for the expanding U.S.-Vietnam relationship. We truly wish to receive strong political commitment from the U.S. government, including you, Mr. President, who has had great affection for Vietnam, the Prime Minister said. Highlights of the major deals announced by the White House during Biden's first-ever visit to Vietnam include U.S.-based Boeing's $7.5 billion deal to sell Vietnam Airlines about 50 aircraft and Arizona-based Amcor Technologies plans for a $1.6 billion factory in Bac Ninh province. The White House also said the administration would help build Vietnamese capacity to fight regional and international transnational crime, including targeting illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing. China has been locked in long-running territorial conflicts with Vietnam, along with the Philippines, Malaysia, and Brunei, as Beijing claims waters in the other nation's exclusive economic zone. Biden arrived in Vietnam on Sunday and met with Nguyen Phu Trong, General Secretary of the Communist Party of Vietnam. Trong formally announced Vietnam had elevated the U.S. to its its highest diplomatic status, comprehensive strategic partner. Biden said the shift demonstrated how far bilateral relations have evolved from the bitter past of the Vietnam War. At the same time, Biden insisted that his roughly 24-hour visit was not about trying to start a Cold War with China, but was part of a broader effort to improve global stability by building relationships throughout Asia, including with Vietnam at a time of tensions with Beijing. Before departing, Biden visited the John Sidney McCain III Memorial near the site where, as a 31-year-old Navy lieutenant commander, McCain's Skyhawk dive bomber was shot down by the North Vietnamese. Both sides exchanged documents Monday on unaccounted for U.S. service members and Vietnamese soldiers. Biden left one of his commemorative coins at the memorial, the White House said. McCain parachuted out of the plane and landed in a lake in Hanoi, North Vietnam. He broke both arms and a leg in the fall and was dragged from the water by an angry crowd, was beaten and bayoneted. The harrowing 1967 incident began a more than five-year ordeal that became the defining moment for the future Republican senator from Arizona and two-time presidential candidate who was mocked by President Trump. 
After six weeks in the hospital, McCain, who had lost about a third of his weight, was transferred to his prison cell. After a brief time with cellmates, McCain, the son and grandson of four-star admirals, began two years in solitary confinement in a 10-by-10-foot room. At one point, McCain's captors asked if he wanted to go home, but it was a trick question. The U.S. military's code of conduct required prisoners to be released in the order in which they were detained. The North Vietnamese wanted to make a show of releasing McCain early as his father assumed command over the Pacific, and McCain refused. For four days after he refused release, McCain was beaten every two to three hours by ten guards. Filled with thoughts of suicide, McCain broke and agreed to sign an anti-U.S. propaganda statement confessing to black crimes. He later wrote, I had learned what we all learned over there. Every man has a breaking point. I had reached mine. It was the last time McCain would break. He refused to sign any other statements or meet with visiting American anti-war activists. Eventually, McCain was removed from solitary confinement and mingled with other U.S. prisoners of war. He was released on March 14th of 1973. McCain returned home, retired from the Navy in 1981, moved to Arizona, and launched a political career. He was elected to the House in 1982 and in 1986 to the Senate, where he and Biden were colleagues. Despite his experience in Vietnam, McCain was a strong advocate of restoring diplomatic relations with the country that had so badly mistreated him. He was the Republican presidential nominee in 2008, but lost to Democrat Barack Obama. He died of brain cancer in 2018. Biden delivered an emotional eulogy at McCain's funeral in Arizona. At the luncheon, Biden said he missed McCain. He praised McCain and John Kerry, another Vietnam War veteran and former Democratic Senate, Senator, Secretary of State in the Obama administration, and Biden's climate envoy, for playing critical roles in the two nations' 50-year arc of progress. Where there was darkness, you all found light, Biden said. On the way back to Washington, Biden was stopping at Joint Base Elmendorf-Richardson in Anchorage, Alaska to address service members, first responders, and their families on the 22nd anniversary of the September 11, 2001 attacks on New York, Washington, and Pennsylvania. John McCain was a hero. We've come to the midway portion of our reading, and it's at this stage in the reading that we move to a different kind of local news the obituaries and death notices that are listed in the Cape Cod Times for that day. And in the Cape Cod Times E-edition of Tuesday, September 12th of 2023, there are two obituaries. The first is of Dennis J. Colbert of South Dennis, who at the age of 76 passed on September 8th. Dennis was a beloved husband, father, grandfather, and brother, known for his unwavering dedication to his family and his impressive golfing prowess. Born and raised in Worcester, Dennis graduated from Worcester Boys Trade School. In 1965, he enlisted in the U.S. Air Force, where he served our country with distinction in Vietnam from 1968 to 1969, earning the rank of Airman First Class before being honorably discharged in 1969. His commitment to duty and service was a testament to his character. Thank you, Mr. Colbert, for that service. Upon returning from military service, Dennis embarked on a 32-year career at Worcester State University, where he dedicated himself to the institution and its community. He retired as the building facilities manager, leaving a lasting impact on the college. 
Dennis's true joy in life came from his family. He was a devoted and caring family man, finding his greatest happiness in the company of his beloved wife Mary, their children, grandchildren, and family dog Raffi. His love and support were unwavering, and he cherished every moment spent with his family. In addition to his family, Dennis had a passion for golf that was truly remarkable. He was a skilled golfer, boasting an impressive eight hole-in-ones and two albatrosses during his time on the green. His dedication to the sport brought him a host of achievements, lasting memories for those that joined him, and he leaves behind a legacy of excellence in golf. In addition to his athletic accomplishments, Dennis was renowned for his exceptional talent in building and construction. He possessed a rare gift for transforming raw materials into functional and beautiful structures. Whether it was crafting intricate woodworking projects, renovating the family home, or assisting families and friends with their construction needs, Dennis's craftsmanship and attention to detail were unparalleled. He survived by his beloved wife Mary and many who will miss him dearly. Dennis's memory will forever live on in the hearts of those who knew and loved him. He'll be remembered for his dedication to family, his service to his country, and his remarkable golfing achievements. May he rest in peace. Visiting hours will be held at the Doan Beal and Ames Funeral Home, 729 Route 134 South Dennis, on Friday, September 15th, from 4 to 7 p.m. A massive Christian burial will be celebrated at St. Pius X Church, 5 Barbara Street in South Yarmouth on Saturday, September 16th at 11 a.m. In lieu of flowers, the Colbert family asks that you consider a donation to the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute or Cape Cod Hospital. The next obituary is of Dorothy Lacanto of Hyannis, who at the age of 91 entered into eternal rest on September 8th. She will have a funeral mass celebrated at 10 a.m. this Friday, September 15th, at St. Francis Xavier Church, 347 South Street in Hyannis. It will be followed by a committal service at St. John Cemetery in Worcester. In lieu of flowers, any memorial do donations may be given to the alzfamilysupport.org website. And that concludes the obituaries and death notices in the Cape Cod Times of September 12th of 2023. Logistical Nightmare A Blaze at Historic Wellfleet Inn Monday Morning by Eric Williams A fire damaged a building at the Copper Swan, a historic inn near the village center on Monday morning in Wellfleet. Authorities were alerted by a call from the location at 6.23 a.m. reporting smoke in the building and that everyone had evacuated the premises, according to Wellfleet Fire Chief Richard Pauley. It's two old buildings that are put together, and it was a logistical nightmare, said Polly. We've got a downstairs that's a cocktail lounge, and then we have a set of stairs that go up to the second level, and there are about eight rooms in there that are rented out for the summer to employees. The combined buildings are made of wood, and Polly said they may date back to the 1700s. According to information on the Copper Swans website, the site, which is home to several buildings, was once a captain's house and transitioned to guest accommodations in the 1930s. Polly said the building sustained significant fire damage in one room on the second floor and also downstairs in the cocktail lounge. It's not going to be able to be inhabited anytime soon, said Polly. Two firefighters sustained minor injuries, one with heat exhaustion and one with slight smoke inhalation while battling the fire, said Polly, who wasn't aware of any other injuries. 
Polly said that the fire was deemed under control at 9.15 a.m. Responders from other towns, including Truro, Eastham, Orleans, Brewster, Chatham, Dennis, and Yarmouth were also on scene to assist. Polly said the cause of the blaze is yet to be determined and was under investigation by the state fire marshal's office. U.S. billion-dollar weather disasters eclipse record by Doyle Rice of USA Today. From storms to wildfires, it's already been a record catastrophic year for weather and climate disasters across the nation, and we've still got nearly four months to go. As of Monday, the U.S. has endured a whopping 23 separate weather and climate disasters that have each led to at least a billion dollars in damage, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration said. That breaks the record of 22 set in 2020. These record-breaking numbers, during a year that's on track to be one of the hottest ever, are sobering and the latest confirmation of a worsening trend in costly disasters, many of which bear the undeniable fingerprints of climate change, Rachel Cletus of the Union of Concerned Scientists, which was not involved in the NOAA report, said in a statement. More than 250 people have been killed in the disasters, NOAA said, and the total cost of these events exceeds $57.6 billion dollars. The number of disasters didn't include Hurricane Hillary, which affected parts of California and the southwest in August. The damage totals for that storm are still being tabulated, NOAA said. According to NOAA, the 23 events include 18 severe weather events, including hailstorms and tornadoes, two flooding events, one tropical cyclone, Hurricane Adelia, one wildfire event, one winter storm event. From 1980 to 2022... The annual number of billion-dollar disasters adjusted for inflation averaged 8.1. Over the past five years, the U.S. has averaged $18 billion disasters a year. Overall, NOAA said the U.S. has sustained 371 separate weather and climate disasters since 1980, where overall damage and costs reached or exceeded a billion dollars, including the Consumer Price Index adjustment to 2023. U.S. tackles Google's search empire. Antitrust trial begins Tuesday in Washington by Michael Lidke of the Associated Press. The U.S. government is taking aim at what has been an indomitable empire, Google's ubiquitous search engine that's become the Internet's main gateway. The legal attack will swing into full force Tuesday in a Washington, D.C. federal courtroom that will serve as the battleground for the biggest U.S. antitrust trial since regulators went after Microsoft and its dominance of personal computer software a quarter century ago. The 10-week trial before U.S. District Judge Amit Mehta is expected to include potentially revelatory testimony from top executives at Google and its corporate parent Alphabet, as well as other powerful technology companies. Alphabet CEO Sundar Pichai, who succeeded Google co-founder Larry Page in 2019, will be among the most prominent witnesses likely to testify. Court documents also indicate one of Apple's highest-ranking executives, Eddie Q, might be called to the stand. The case against Google mirrors the one brought against Microsoft in many ways, including the existential threat it poses to a tech giant whose products are relied on by billions of people. The trial is scheduled to continue into late November before its, fi- its first phase wraps, after which another round of court filings and arguments are expected. Meta isn't expected to issue a ruling until early next year. 
If he decides Google's been breaking the law, it'll trigger another trial to determine what measures should be taken to rein in the Mountain View, California company. Although Google products such as the Chrome web browser, Gmail, YouTube, and online maps all are hugely popular, none have become as indispensable or as valuable as the internet search engine invented by Page and a fellow Stanford University grad student, Sergey Brin, in the late 1990s. The trials beginning just a couple of weeks after the 25th anniversary of the first investment in the company, a $100,000 check written by Sun Microsystems co-founder Andy Bechtelsheim that enabled Page and Brin to set up shop in a Silicon Valley garage. Today, Google's corporate parent, Alphabet Inc., is worth $1.7 trillion and employs 182,000 people with most of the money coming from $224 billion in annual ad sales flowing through a network of digital services that are anchored by the search engine that fields billions of queries a day. Google could be hobbled if the antitrust trial culminates in concessions that undercut its power. One possibility is that the company could be forced to stop paying Apple and other companies to make Google the default search engine on smartphones and computers. On, or the legal battle could cause Google to lose focus. That's what happened to Microsoft after its antitrust showdown with the Justice Department. Distracted, the software giant struggled to adapt to the impact of Internet search and smartphones. Google capitalized on that distraction to leap from its startup roots into an imposing powerhouse. Nearly three years after filing its antitrust lawsuit during the Trump administration, lawyers from the U.S. Justice Department will try to prove Google has been abusing the power of its search engine to stifle competition in ways that discouraged innovation. Critics say the quality of search results has deteriorated, too, as Google used its engine to sell ads and promote its own products, like Google restaurant reviews instead of those offered by Yelp. Dozens of state attorneys general, led by Colorado, have waded into the battle and will have a chance to prove Google into an illegal monopoly that's harming consumers. The crux of the Justice Department's argument will boil down to its contention that Google's search engine has become like digital air almost everyone breathes, and that it needs to be cleaned up because the company's tactics have polluted the atmosphere. Google's vast legal team is expected to counter that the company has never stopped improving its search engine, executing its original mission to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible to anyone with an internet connection. From Google's perspective, the perpetual improvements explain why most people almost reflexively gravitate to its search engine, a habit that long ago made Googling synonymous with looking things up. Despite commanding about 90% of the internet search market, Google argues it faces a wide range of competition from other search engines, such as Microsoft's Bing and DuckDuckGo, and websites such as Amazon and Yelp. The Justice Department contends Google's claim that it dominates the market by supplying the best search engine is a canard. They allege Google protects its franchise through a form of payola, shelling out billions of dollars annually to be the default search engine on the iPhone, for example. Regulators also allege Google has illegally rigged the market in its favor by requiring its search engine be bundled with its Android software for smartphones if the device manufacturers want full access to the Android App Store. By locking in Google's search engine as the default choice in so many places, the Justice Department contends the company has made it more difficult for people to find the best results as quickly as possible. 
Regulators allege the company's deals ensure Google's automatic access to billions of queries that provide data for its search engine, while boxing out Bing and DuckDuckGo from getting information that could help them improve their results. The tactics have created a toxic situation, allowing Google to cram more ads at the top of its search results, increasing its profits and Alphabet stock price, according to the Justice Department. That practice requires consumers to dig ever deeper to answer their questions, something that regulators believe could be avoided if rival services could collect as much information as Google does through its lock-in agreements. Google insists that consumers could easily switch their default settings to another search engine. The company also argues it does face competition from evolving technology. Microsoft, for example, is baking artificial intelligence from its business partner, OpenAI, into its Bing search engine. That move in early February prodded Google to start equipping its search engine with AI-fueled results as well. The next headline, High-Profile Food Products Recalled for Contamination, by Janelle Alechia of the Associated Press. Rocks in Trader Joe's cookies, insects in its broccoli cheese soup, pieces of plastic in banquet frozen chicken strips. In recent weeks, U.S. consumers have seen high-profile food recalls for an unappetizing reason. They're contaminated with foreign objects that have no place on a dinner plate. And while no one wants to bite down on stainless steel and peanut butter or bone fragments in smoked sausage, this type of contamination is one of the top reasons for food recalls in the U.S. Food safety experts in federal agencies use the term extraneous or foreign materials to describe things like metal fragments, rubber gaskets, and bits of bugs that somehow make it into packaged goods. Extraneous materials triggered nine recalls in 2022 of more than 477,000 pounds of food regulated by the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Food Safety and Inspection Service triple the number of recalls tied to food contaminated with toxic E. coli bacteria. And the size of recalls can reach into the millions. In 2019, USDA reported 34 recalls of more than 16 million pounds of food, spurred in large part by a giant recall of nearly 12 million pounds of Tyson chicken strips tainted with pieces of metal. Plastic pieces from frayed conveyor belts, wood shards from produce, from produce pallets, metal shavings or wire from machinery are all common. So are rocks, sticks, and bugs that can make it from the field to the factory. Some contamination may even be expected, the FDA acknowledges in a handbook. It is economically impractical to grow, harvest, or process raw products that are totally free of non-hazardous, naturally occurring, unavoidable defects, the agency wrote. Both the USDA and FDA ask companies to promptly notify them when food is potentially contaminated with objects that may harm consumers. The agencies then determine whether recalls are necessary. Most recalls are voluntary and initiated by the companies, though the agencies can request or mandate the action. Regulators said the banquet issue was discovered when someone reported an oral injury after eating chicken strips. Conagra Brands, Inc., which owns Banquet, declined to comment beyond the firm's news release. And Trader Joe's wouldn't elaborate on how material got into the foods that led to its recent recalls. Detection of unwanted objects has vastly improved in the past several years, said Keith Belk, director of the Center for Meat Safety and Quality at Colorado State University. Large manufacturers use technology to find unwanted materials in their products. Still, they're going to miss things, Belk said.
Those things have included pieces of gray nitrile glove that forced the recall of nearly 6,400 pounds of chicken tortilla soup in 2021, and pieces of copper wire that led to recall of nearly 5,800 pounds of frozen beef shepherd's pie in 2022. In recent years, firms have become increasingly cautious and are recalling products more frequently than before, said Nathan Miradamandi, a consultant with Commercial Food Sanitation, which advises on food safety. Hurricane brings big swells along the Caribbean. Storm not expected to make landfall this week. In San Juan, Puerto Rico, Hurricane Lee whipped up waves of more than 15 feet on Monday as the Category 3 storm cranked through open waters just north of the Caribbean region. The storm's not expected to make landfall this week, although forecasters said residents of New England and nearby areas should keep a close eye on Lee, whose future path is uncertain. It was located about 365 miles north of the northern Leeward Islands. It had winds of up to 120 miles an hour and was moving northwest at 8 miles an hour. Lee is expected to strengthen slightly in upcoming days before weakening again. The National Hurricane Center said Lee is likely to pass just west of Bermuda late Thursday and Friday and be located offshore of the mid-Atlantic states in New England by the end of the week. Although weakening is forecast later in the week, Lee is expected to significantly increase in size, and hazards will extend well away from the center of the storm, the center said. Bermuda could experience wind, rain, and high surf, but it's too soon to determine the specific timing and level of those impacts, the center said. A high surf advisory was in effect for Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands, with the National Weather Service warning of breaking waves of up to 15 feet for north and east-facing beaches. The National Hurricane Center also warned of dangerous surf and rip currents for most of the U.S. East Coast this week, but what the hurricane might do beyond that is unclear. It remains too soon to know what level of additional impacts Lee might have along the northeast U.S. coast and Atlantic Canada later this week and this weekend. However, wind and rainfall hazards will likely extend well away from the center as Lee grows in size, the center said. Lee strengthened from a Category 1 storm to a Category 5 storm last week in the span of 24 hours before weakening slightly. Lee is the 12th named storm of the Atlantic hurricane season, which runs from June 1st to November 30th and peaked on Sunday. Wisconsin GOP trying to keep its edge, reads our next headline. Party could impeach justice over redistricting. Scott Bauer and David A. Lieb wrote this for the Associated Press in Madison, Wisconsin. Wisconsin Republicans have enjoyed outsized control of the legislature in one of the most closely divided states for a dozen years. Maintaining that power is now at the heart of a drama involving the state Supreme Court that has national political implications. A new liberal tilt to the court is driving Republican fears of losing their large legislative majorities, which were built under some of the most gerrymandered political maps in the country. Republicans have threatened to impeach the justice who was elected earlier this year and flip the court to a 4-3 to three liberal majority unless she withdraws from any case involving redistricting. The GOP is citing concerns about her campaign statements and fundraising. Democratic leaders have decried that threat as political extortion and are mobilizing voters to pressure Republicans in districts won by the new justice to back down. Impeachment is an act of pure power politics, said Ben Wickler, chair of the Wisconsin Democratic Party. It's a desperate gambit to avoid accountability to voters who choose their state representatives, their state senators, and their Supreme Court justices. 
Altering the makeup of the Wisconsin Supreme Court also holds the potential to affect the 2024 presidential election in the perennial battleground. Four of the past six presidential contests in the state have been decided by less than a percentage point. In 2020, the state Supreme Court then controlled 4-3 by conservatives, came within one vote of overturning Democrat Joe Biden's nearly 21,000-vote victory over then-President Donald Trump. Wisconsin Republicans who hold majorities in, of 64 to 35 in the state assembly and 22 to 11 in the Senate are squarely focused on their own futures. The political maps they drew that helped them win near-veto-proof supermajorities are at risk of being overturned under the newly left-leaning Supreme Court. Two lawsuits challenging the gerrymandered maps as unconstitutional were filed the first week after the new justice was seated, and the Supreme Court is yet to decide whether it will take either case. Republicans and Democrats, the last time they had majority control of the legislature 14 years ago, have resisted moves to give up their power to draw electoral district boundaries. States that have shifted responsibility from redistricting from partisan legislatures to independent commissions generally have seen a reduction in gerrymandering, in which lines are drawn in a way that expands or cements one party's grip on power. Districts drawn by independent commissions generally result in election outcomes more closely aligned with the will of the voters. Neighboring Michigan stars as an neighboring Michigan stands as a stark example of what can happen under independent redistricting. Republican lawmakers who then controlled Michigan's redistricting process drew maps after the 2010 census that gave them an enduring advantage for the next decade. In 2020, for example, Democratic legislative candidates received a slight majority of votes, yet Republicans won a 58-52 to 52 majority in the Michigan House and a 22-16 to 16 majority in the Senate under the maps they had drawn. Unlike Wisconsin, Michigan allows its residents to propose their own laws or constitutional amendments and then puts those proposals on the ballot for a statewide vote. In 2018, voters approved a citizen-led effort to take redistricting away from state lawmakers and give the task to an independent commission. That commission, which is instructed to be guided by partisan fairness, drew the current legislative and congressional maps after the 2020 census. The 2022 midterm election was the first to use Michigan's new districts, resulting in a flip of legislative control. Democratic legislative candidates received just under 51% of the total statewide votes, translating to a 56-54 to 54 House majority and a 20-18 to 18 Senate majority. In Wisconsin, it's impossible to change the redistricting process unless lawmakers voluntarily relinquish their power. That's because Wisconsin's among 26 states that don't allow citizens to bypass their legislature through ballot initiatives. The result is that Wisconsin continues to operate under legislative districts shaped by Republican lawmakers who have built lopsided majorities that don't reflect the state's overall political leanings. While Republicans have used partisan gerrymandering to maintain their large majorities in the legislature, voters have elected Democrats to all but one of the statewide executive offices that are decided on a partisan basis, including governor and attorney general. They also have elected a Republican and a Democrat to the U.S. Senate, votes that also are done on a statewide basis. Republican leadership in Wisconsin's worked hard over the past decade to insulate themselves from the will of the voters, said Democratic Assembly Minority Leader Greta Neubauer. 
In the 2022 election, Wisconsin's assembly districts led the nation, had the nation's second largest Republican tilt behind only West Virginia, according to the Associated Press statistical analysis that was designed to detect potential gerrymandering. Republicans received less than 55% of the votes cast for a major party assembly for major party assembly candidates, yet they won 65% of the seats. That's what you call rigged, said Democratic U.S. Representative Mark Pocan, a former Wisconsin State Assembly member. It's not a Democratic or Republican issue. It shows that there's an imbalance in the math of a 50-50 state. Wisconsin Assembly Speaker Robin Vose, in testimony he gave in 2021 when introducing the latest maps, noted that the U.S. Supreme Court allowed for partisanship to be a factor when drawing lines. Was partisanship considered as a consideration in the map? Yes, Vose testified. The Wisconsin legislature is effectively really no longer a democracy, said Nick Seabrook, a redistricting researcher and department chair at the University of North Florida. There's no plausible popular vote result that's ever going to lead to anything other than a Republican majority in the Wisconsin state legislature. We'll end today's reading with a little bit of advice from Ask Carolyn. Boyfriend worries his girlfriend's stepdad is emotionally abusive. Hi, Carolyn. My girlfriend and I are both in college. We've been together for eight months and we love each other very much. I'm a little worried that she's emotionally abused by her stepdad and I don't know what to do about it. For an example, he monitors and criticizes my girlfriend's weight when she's at home, calls her and her mom glass bowls, and says he is smarter than they are because of the college he went to and has said my girlfriend is a guest in his house. He makes light of anxiety issues she has. She doesn't have a bank account and is reliant on his credit card, but he threatens to withhold or offer money, like thousands of dollars, depending on whether she goes along with his preferences on things like which major she chooses. Once, when I visited her house, he offered to let me drive an expensive car he has, even though my girlfriend is prohibited from ever driving it. His offering me the keys in front of her made me feel gross, like he was belittling her. I passed on driving the car. What's going on here? Is this emotional abuse? And what can I do about it as a boyfriend that won't make things worse? My girlfriend says she hates him, but feels stuck because he's threatened to stop paying for college if she does something wrong. Signed, a boyfriend. Dear a boyfriend. Oh, wow. Yeah, this checks about every box for emotional abuse. Belittling, shaming, controlling, financial strong-arming. It's a buffet of abuses of his power over her. Please remind her there are resources to help her navigate this. It's a difficult problem. I won't minimize it, but this is not the same as her being helpless or or stuck. Typically, a college's counseling service is the most accessible option, but many are stretched beyond their capacity. Still, yours may not be. Without pushing, see whether your girlfriend's up to making an appointment. Return thereafter to your listener role, regardless of her answer. This hinges on the college's resources in another way, but she can speak to financial aid advisors to learn of any options for cutting ties to an abusive parent. It's a big if, but she won't know whether help is available unless she starts asking for it. The next place to turn is solid, free, and available on short notice, the National Domestic Violence Hotline, thehotline.org. It's not on the ground like the school can be, but the hotline staff can do the crucial work of explaining why the stepfather's behavior is abusive, what the risks are, and what she can do to mitigate them. 
She'd be wise to get a job, even a tiny one, and a bank account for her earnings. I'm so glad you asked this and you have shown her such love and respect. This not only says good things about you, but also about her. It's a sign her picker still works despite her exposure to abuse tactics at home. That she chose someone supportive is a ray of light from an otherwise dark situation. And with that great advice, we have come to the end of our reading of the Cape Cod Times for today, Tuesday, September 12th of 2023. This is your reader, Eric, saying be well, be safe, look after each other. Remember our veterans. Bye for now.